All right, good morning, everyone. Let's go ahead and get started. And let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that your goodness and your mercy you continue to draw us and continue to bring us. We thank you for this opportunity now to learn again, to study together again, to be in your presence again, to be under the authority of your word once again. So would you lead us now in this moment that you would be honored, that we would grow, that there would be glory lifted up to your throne. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have notes for what book today. I don't have the full packet, but I can pass it every week. Anyone else need for Titus today? Can you pass it behind you? Okay, so I'll leave these here. Someone comes in and you give them to them. And there's a question on the floor about something that we talked about previously. So what, First Timothy? First Timothy chapter 5. And I don't know, it's not any kind of a deep question, but when it says in verse 17, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, What does that look like? Especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So you yeah. bring in what does the part. double honor look like? They get two slices of pie at the top of her one. What does that mean? That could be. Because they probably signed up if they got two. Well, so what is so what is the context? So if we just read the verses that follow, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it spreads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So the context seems to be that there are certain elders then that get remunerated for their work, okay? And Paul would, would, would tell the church in Corinth that those who um, give their life to preach the gospel should earn their living from the gospel. So that it's talking about financial support, I think, of certain elders in the church. We might call them pastors today. The double honor might simply be that they're given the position of honor, but they're also paid for it. I don't know exactly what that means. But the context implies something about remuneration, a salary, or some type of financial uh, provision. Beyond that, I'm not. I, uh, that would be my initial thought. Okay. Um, it's, yeah, it's one of those issues that, you know, you ask the pastor about money. It's like, uh, well, I can talk about it, but what's that? That's a tender issue. Yeah, but because the Bible does, and Jesus certainly does, and it's not that I'm afraid to talk about it, but it needs to be handled with respect of what the whole counsel of God says about it. Okay. But good question. Before we move on, is there any other questions? Yes, sir. Well, what is that? You know, I'm, I'm of the idea that you're not a hired on a hireling, your call to God, and remuneration is what needs to be, and not the other way around. If I'm an employee, then I'm told. Right. Yeah, so, um, I mean, uh, uh, I don't know if you all heard the question. Did you hear it? No, is a pastor to be considered an employee or a hireling? Or is he called of God to preach and then a church and a pastor agree together that this is the place where that should happen. I think is that kind of what's going on? So the idea of giving to the Lord's work is all throughout the scriptures. I mean even the priests that served in the temple would get a portion of the sacrifices that were given and they lived off of that. And there was even there was more than one tithe, as you probably know. So there were tithes that were taken occasionally to take care of the widows and the orphans. There was a tithe taken occasionally to take care of the, the servants in the temple. And then they would also earn a portion from that service. Uh, but they were called of God. with the tribe of Levi. God was the one that set them apart. God was the one that uh, kept, held them accountable. And he was pretty good at it. Because when some of them misstepped, he entered the priesthood post haste. Okay? So the idea in the New Testament then, when we see Paul going around appointing elders, as he does in every place where he plants the gospel, or shares the gospel, the church is planted, he appoints elders, then as part of his instruction to those churches, 
he instructs the church to take care of his elders, those that are the under-shepherds serving them, tending to their souls, teaching the Word of God, so that giving then to the church is a normal part of Christian discipleship uh, growth pattern. Um, and goes to great lengths. We saw in 1 Corinthians even show that our giving should be growing. You know, we growingly, like we grow in all the graces, he says, may you grow in this grace as well. So, how does that look like? It, it varies a little bit how it's played out culturally from place to place. But generally, yes, um, I see my, my position as one that God has called me to. And so my primary audience is an audience of one. Having said that, the servant of God is never serving in a vacuum. He's always serving in a situation. So there is accountability, and that needs to take place in that local setting. But it is a, a mutual or a community accountability that's taking place. So just as uh, they hold my feet in accountability before God, I hold them in accountability before the Word of God. You know, so that goes on. It's a, it's a relationship of a community of believers, but God has assigned certain ones to the office of pastor. I don't know that. Yes. It explains. So, none of us should be a renegade. None of us should be a lone ranger. We're not called to that. I've never called anyone to that. We are called and we join at the moment of our salvation a community of believers. It's not just a Jesus and me and we got a good thing going, as the country song says. It is, no, he has purchased us. We belong to him. By belonging to him, we belong to his people. Therefore, we can't be wandering off on our own. Okay? So, um, there's a lot in that question. There's a lot in the answer, but it's that's how I see how it works. Uh, that lays out that those who rule um, well, especially those who labor preaching and teaching, should be rewarded or remunerated because of that work. Okay? Maybe we have to have a, uh, a whole long session of this stewardship. But, uh, I know the elders, we've talked about it, we've tried to get them here. Just the whole idea of money is confusing for a lot of Christians. They're enslaved to money. They're enslaved to debt. So I've, I've put in several contexts with the Dave Ramsey ministry to try to get Financial Peace University here. And I can't seem to get them to answer my emails to actually set up a date because this would be a, a stewardship class where people learn how to handle their money, how to budget, how to be respectful stewards of what God has given them with the goal towards being debt-free, working hard, and actually, he flat out says it, becoming what he calls everyday millionaires. Not in the sense of becoming a millionaire, but he talks about, his phrase is, live today like no one else, so that one day you'll live like no one else. What he means by that is today we live sacrificially to stay out of debt, to build wealth, so that one day we can live like no one else in being generous. He talks about, I forget the term he uses, but just lavish generosity and being stewards of what he's given to us. But that's the biggest thing is uh, during COVID, I know we're off target, but it is still, it's, a slave, it's, a, it's an enslavement and it's a heart issue. Personal debt has gone up. People have taken the free money that the government's given out and they've spent it, but now credit card debt is up. And that's slavery. People are enslaved, they live in fear. And we saw this in Jordan. When we first got to Jordan, nobody had a credit card. Then suddenly the banks started giving out credit cards. And they didn't give the requisite education and discipline and instruction on how to use the credit card, so they would get a limit to $5,000. Well, guess what would happen? Free money, $5,000, right? But they don't have the way of paying it back, so they pay it back at, you know, $15, $25 a month. And then another credit card comes along and says, hey, transfer your balance at a lower interest rate, and we'll bump it up to $7,500. So you see what happens if most people live in quiet fear. Because you're, you're, you're enslaved to the lender. Um, the Bible says don't be enslaved to the lender. You know, be, be a good steward of what you've been given. And live with what God has given you. And then, uh, you know, I, I said last week, I'm a Christian capitalist. I believe that wealth is created. 
through industry, through innovation, through hard work, through investment. Uh, and I think that that's the only system that actually brings people out of poverty. And I think history bears that out. Um, but that capitalism needs to be guided by the principles of the gospel as well. So that was all free. Nothing added to the price of admission. But if there's no other questions on First or Second Timothy, why don't we go ahead and move towards Titus? So Titus is one of the books that is considered the pastoral epistles. One of the last, probably three letters that he wrote um, as he's preparing a couple of young men for ministry. We've already looked at First and Second Timothy, so let me just quickly uh, advance this down to the book of Titus. You know, we know a lot about Timothy. We don't seem to know as much about Titus. Um, we can gather, if we look at uh, Galatians 2, that perhaps Titus... Did I say Titus? Galatians 2. That he may have been a convert of Paul. Kind of a Christ in his ministry. Um, and that Paul was his disciple or mentor, building him up in his discipleship. In Titus chapter 1, verse 4, he refers to Titus as my true son in our common faith. But he also calls Timothy his son, and Timothy clearly was not one of his converts, so we don't, we don't push it too far. Um, but it's interesting that, and we won't take time to tease it out now, but you recall when we looked at Timothy... Timothy was a man of good reputation in his church. He had a Jewish mother and Greek father. When Paul came through, he said, I need someone that can go along with me in ministry. Titus was the one that was set apart. This was going to be for the missionary tour, uh, um, a journey of evangelism. And for that reason, then, Timothy was circumcised for the purposes of evangelistic ministry among Jewish people. But Paul does not make the same decision with Titus. In fact, steadfastly refuses to circumcise Titus, and that becomes part of the gospel uh, collision that's going on, okay? Um, we can look at that. But, um, because, and I, uh, second Corinthians, okay. Um, but t Titus was, t so Titus was not circumcised because of discipleship. Timothy was because of evangelism, and because he was Jewish. So, Paul couldn't be everywhere at one time. But it seems like Titus was one of them he would send somewhere to check on the situation. He talks about it in 2 Corinthians 2, um, or 2 Corinthians 8, among places where he says, I sent Titus to go and check out the situation. Um, so it seems like he was a trustworthy person that Paul would confide and go almost as his ambassador. Um, so yeah, as I put it here, you seen as a problem solver. It seemed to go to different situations. If you want the references, it's 2 Corinthians 2, 3, and 4. Um, and 2 Corinthians 8, verses 16 to 24. At some point, and we can't quite figure it out where the missionary journeys that we have, Paul went to the island of Crete. And he started a church there. And he was not able to... Uh, stay there, and so we see in, in his letter to Titus, verse 5 of chapter 1, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Um, so Timothy, Titus becomes the point person for Paul on the island of Crete, at least for a season. Um, if I understand chapter 3, verse 12, he sends Artemis and Tychicus to Crete, and he's asking Titus to come meet him in somewhere else, Nicopolis, where he's going to spend the winter. So perhaps Paul was moving people in and out as was needed for him. And then in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, he says that he... Sent Titus to Dalmatia. So Paul was, uh, he, this was, he called on Titus to be his problem saver, solver, and he was the guy called out of the bullpen when there were two outs on the bottom of the ninth and the bases were loaded. You know, this is who Titus came. He would solve the problem, 
Great for Victor to keep things going. Most of you don't understand anything I just said. <laughs> yeah. Baseball reference. So, but Rick Gentry does. Yes. And so I said it for Rick Gentry. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> so Titus is now the, the, the overseer in, in Crete, overseeing the church. Will appoint the elders. Will uh, instruct this young church and how to be a church. And so it's another one of these very practical letters that Paul writes, helping a church and young leaders to grow. Um, so some of the other situations that we might see, we know it's written by Paul. Hasn't been a lot of discussion on that, except that some try to say that Paul couldn't have been on the scene at this time. We, you know, we, we don't worry about that. Um, when did he write it? Well, we have to kind of take a guess. If Paul was in prison in 62, maybe early 63 AD, when he wrote the four prison epistles, and he was released, and then martyred a few day, a few years later, it seems like it would happen during this period of his release and his execution in 67 AD. So we just kind of split the difference and say it was around 65 AD. Uh, he would have written these letters approximately the same time he wrote 1st and 2nd Timothy. Although I think possibly in the middle, simply because of the way he says things, and that Second Timothy seems to be the last book. Um, it's a break from Macedonia. He mentions Nicopolis in Second Timothy four. I don't have it on the map where Nicopolis is. That's what Google is for. You can find it on your phone to figure out where Nicopolis was in the region of Macedonia. But as he lays out the letter, you can see he's talking about the elders, again, like he did with Timothy. He gives specific group instructions to specific groups in chapter 2. It's actually just a wonderful chapter to walk through and see how Timothy, I mean Paul, through Titus, points out the needs of different groups in the church, recognizing their importance, recognizing their contribution, and recognizing their need. Uh, but then living well uh, and finally ending with some closing remarks. It's a short letter. It doesn't take very long to read through it. Um, so what is what is he reading? And let's think a little bit. Uh, you know, there might be questions we'd ask one day. You know, what, what exactly were the dynamics between these young men and Paul? How did they meet? How did they spend time together? Some of it we just we speculate only based on what we know about daily life at that time. But we only know what we know, which is what's in here. So we try to piece together like a puzzle, the timeline of each of Paul's trips. Um, how many of you had the privilege of actually studying through the book of Titus? So a few of you. It's, it's generally not one of the books that people go to first, right? When they think of the New Testament, book of Romans, or book of James, or Gospel of John. Of course, they're all wonderful. But Titus sometimes seems to be kind of left to the side as unimportant. And I find it just a wonderful source of encouragement and instruction. If we look at the, the main themes, along with 1 Timothy... In the book of Titus, we have a very nice set of descriptions for selecting elders. So, if, if the church was young, and it seems it was, and it was a need of spiritual leadership, notice that Paul, in chapter 5, verse 1, appoints uh, uh, Titus to appoint elders. So he's entrusting him with that responsibility. But he's instructed him in how to do so. So he says, appoint elders in every town as I've instructed you. And then gives a list of what the qualifications are. Now when we looked at this list of qualifications in 1 Timothy, we've noticed a lot of similarities here. Qualifications for elders are high. They're rigorous. Um, would be especially important in a situation where there is young leadership. Church is young. Very important that there be solid leadership to help shepherd and guide a younger um, flock. So the only thing that I notice that is really different uh, I think in 1 Timothy he says, let him not be a recent convert. 
And I don't think he says the same thing in Titus. First Timothy 3, 6, he must not be a recent convert. I don't see that here in Titus, but I see everything else. And I don't know if that's just a, he knew what he needed to write. I don't know if it was because it was a younger church. But what is still there is, is quite solid. So let's just look at this list. Above reproach, the husband of one wife, handles his children well. His children are not charged with debauchery or insubordination. Um, he stewards God's things well. He's not arrogant, quick-tempered, a drunkard, violent, greedy. He is hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Now, look at that phrase there. Self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. This is for the elders, right? Okay. Let's go to chapter 2. So, verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, all of us, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live what? Self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So you see that the same requirements listed for the elders are actually listed for all believers. So the challenge is that for all of us to live these holy lives in light of the present age, and I find that especially helpful that in light of the question that we just had about the role of the elders and pastors versus the congregation, it's like, well, we're all living by the same standards. And so then that, that, that accountability and that mutual encouragement and that challenge then is going to be in a relational aspect, not a dictatorial aspect or a bishopric, you know, where you have a, a guy with a tall hat sitting on the throne just giving the scepter to everyone. I see this as more collegial or more community level where the leaders and those they are leading are moving together because they're following the same principles of holiness. Does that make sense? Do you see it like that? Yeah. Well, the other thing, I mean, to me this models what mature Christianity is like because uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, not that Second Timothy doesn't do that also, but you think about, hey, when you're maturing as a Christian, you should see the evidence of the fruit so forth, but this is like, okay, so if those things are evident in a person's life over time, yes. then this is what their life should look like. Yes. And, I mean, it's, it's a challenge, really, to us. So, I mean, elders, in a sense, need to be showing that in perhaps larger measure now, yes. but as they shepherd the congregation, it becomes more the reality, right, of the people that they're shepherding. If we look at the first ten verses of Titus chapter 2, he's spelling out different groups. So it talks to the older men, to the older women, to the younger men, to the younger women. And then it loops it back and says, but now let me just talk to all of you. Okay? And um, even, even what it looks like in chapter 2, verse 14, to purify for himself people for his own possession, so we belong to him, who are what? <coughs> Zealous good works. What's the role of good works in the Christian life? They'll just show as we are maturing, as we are growing, as we are applying the gospel, as we are living. We will be eager to apply and live out the gospel. Um, and I I know that in my own heart, am I, I zealous to do good works? Am I zealous to do okay, Lord, help me, because that's what you're saying. This is where, that's what I've become. I've become that person. Um, but, where does it start out? Verse 11, the grace of God. It always goes back to the grace of God, empowering us, and changing us, and transforming us. And the result is, but sometimes we we want to flip it around and say, well, I've got to earn more grace, or I've got to earn the favor of God, or I have to whatever by doing good works. And I think, no, in the grace of God, we already have that. Okay. So, instructions for elders. What can we do as a community and as elders to community, community to elders, the church? Verse 9 of chapter 1. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict. That's a lot in one verse. Okay? There are a lot of exhortations there. There are challenges. There are implications. Okay? 
what would that look like? Okay. And how is that lived out the power of the Spirit through the world community? I think it implies consistency. Okay. That they they this is their mode of living, and they continually and they have in the past, and we project that in the future because they are solid believers, that we can expect that kind of behavior and knowledge and insight. Yeah. Growing together and growing individually, right? Okay. Hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught. Because you can't have a, a weak spined Bible teacher. Right? You have to hold firm to the word is taught. Not as how people want to receive it. Right? That becomes a challenge then. So that, because they're firm in what is taught, so I, 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 if you haven't had a chance to be in my office, you know, I have my desk here, and on the side of a bookshelf, I've got two statements there. One is from Dr. John MacArthur about what the challenge and the privilege of being a Bible teacher is, and the second one is from Dr. R.C. Sproul that says to the effect, we must teach and preach what the Word of God actually says, and all that it says, and not what we want it to say. Okay? And so, that becomes my challenge then as I glance over and it's like, are you sure, Lord? And it's like, well, here it is. <laughs> and so, I, my, my conscience is bound to teach it as it is, in all of its fullness. And that's what he's saying here, isn't it? Hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught, so that he'll be able to give instruction to sound doctrine. If he's not firm in his doctrine, how can he correct someone else in theirs? Right? So, this is under the rubric of the elders, initially. But I think we also understand it becomes the responsibility of the church as, as, as a whole. Right? That we watch over each other and what is being taught. Practically, in today's world, that means we encourage one another and watch over how we're handling social media. We shouldn't just blindly pass on something that we've seen because it's a good saying. We need to analyze it. Is it true? And if we see somebody posting something that we need to be able to say something, the practice is saying, you might want to take that down because of what the Word of God says. I did that in a posting that I'm part of a couple of days ago, where it was going off in this kind of self-reflection. How do I feel about God? And I wrote and said, it's not about how I feel about God. It's what God has done for us. And where is my focus, on Him or on me? And then I quoted that we are found not having a righteousness, Philippians 3, 9, that belongs to us, but a righteousness that comes from faith in Christ. We need to gently instruct one another to say, keep your, your eyes on Christ and who He is and what He's done, not on my emotional state and how I feel about Him, which probably can change several times over the course of an hour. Okay? That's not a very solid foundation. But what is a solid foundation is what God clearly says He has done, who He is, and what He wants us to become. Okay? So, when you're, you're having tea, when you're having a Bible study and something comes up, and you think, ah, I'm not sure about that, you need to look for an opportunity to pull a person aside and say, let's take a look at that. Because the farther we let it go on, it becomes part of the furniture. Then it gets accepted as the body of knowledge. Then it becomes acted upon. Then it becomes something we live. Pretty soon, it's getting harder and harder to redress it, correct it, and overcome it. Okay? So that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. It's not easy. Because our culture does everything it can to keep us from being exact with the truth. But the Word of God says we have to be. Okay? Any thoughts on that as we continue on? I have a question. Yes, sir. Are the responsibilities of elders equal? Are they uh, that which we expect of you should we expect of the elders? Well, if you ask the question, what do you think? 
I were to ask you the question. No, I'm gonna let you say it. <laughs> <laughs> I have an opinion. Well, I think of that we're all short. <laughs> and it's okay. This is where we can share that challenges and opinions. Okay? I'm not sure it's practical though. Okay. So look at verse five. It says appoint elders, plural. So we start with the principle there that plurality of elders, we also see it elsewhere in, in Acts, and we see it in 1 Timothy, and that plurality of elders seems to be the New Testament norm. So there's not just a, a, a one-man show with some yes-men around him. Right? These are elders that have been appointed by God, and in our case, affirmed by the congregation. So yes, there would be a a mutual sharing of respect and responsibility and opportunities and privileges and those kind of things. But even within that, we can have designated roles. Okay? So, um, while all elders are required to know how to teach, teaching can take several different forms. Teaching can be a one-on-one -on -one counseling session. It can be working with a family. It can be working in a men's Bible study. But it might not be that all of the elders will be called to be the public teachers of the word on Sunday service. They may not be gifted for that, but they're called to teach. Uh, there might be a division of labor, if you would say. You know, and that's where it comes back to the question we had before. Those that dedicate themselves to the teaching and preaching of the word. I have a great group of elders here. There's always been a great group of elders at this church since I've been here. And I'm quite sure long before I got here that they free me up by doing a lot of different things that allow me to dedicate my time really to the teaching and preaching of the Word. And I can, I can rely on them to help me with things behind the scenes that maybe you're not aware of, maybe you are, but I also defer to them many times as we talk and pray together about what we should do because we need that collegial interaction and confirmation together. Sometimes I have to lead them, sometimes I have to pull them, other times they say, not yet. And this is how we walk together as a group of men. And um, I appreciate them very much. And I, I know that I can trust them to teach well in the different situations, to handle the Word of God well, to have wisdom and counseling, to think about um, how to improve a situation. But we're all very painfully aware that we are still men of feet of clay. And so we need the grace of God always to empower us. Okay? Jim, is that okay? I just asked you and you gave. <laughs> okay. All right. The second thing he talks about is specific instructions to specific groups as we await the return of Jesus Christ. So I love what he does here. He talks in verse 2 of chapter 2, how the older men, what their demeanor and their character is to be in chapter verse 3, what the older women are to be, and then what their role is. And what a think of what a life transforming challenge senior saints, senior women saints have as we get to verse 4. Verse 3 says there, to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive. Think of, we have an expression in our culture that the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. So think of the strategic role that women in the church can play in impacting future generations by mentoring and training in the women. It's revolutionary. And sometimes we undervalue or underplay the role that women can have. I look at this and I'm like, wow. What an opportunity and what a responsibility, but what a great blessing. Okay? Uh, I'm glad God put that in there to remind us that each of these different roles are so vital to the thriving of the church family. Okay? Younger men in verse 6. Um, uh, and then, um, yeah, the younger women have already been addressed. They will be the ones that will be taught by the older women. And the younger men, oh, what younger men need to do, control yourselves. That's pretty much the universal command, isn't it, to young men everywhere? Show yourselves, young men, in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent 
that we put, we put to shame having nothing to say about us. We talked a few weeks ago about a lot of these young, dynamic leaders that arose about a decade ago. And they were leading great movements and great churches and it looks like they were just going to be the next wave of, uh, of great teaching and leadership. And many of them have crashed. They didn't, they didn't stay with what is written here. Show yourself in all respects to be models of good works. Teaching show integrity, sound speech. And they've left the door open for the enemy to bring in condemnation and repeat to the church. Um, this is serious business because people's eternal destinies are at stake. And, and also their spiritual vitality is at stake. And so we, we hear the challenges then. So if we look at that, why does he do that? Verse 11 to verse 15 is just a great, a great sermon in there. We're not going to go through the sermon now. But look at God's grace in verse 11. What does it do? The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And now look at what grace is going to do. Training us. And, and we say yes to some things. We tra we're trained to say no to some things. Okay? How to live, as we've already looked at, self-controlled, upright, godly lives. Waiting. Now this is not something that grace teaches us, but it allows us to wait. But is this passive waiting? Is it sitting around, twiddling our thumbs, playing Wordle on the phone? Oh, did I just step on somebody's toes? <laughs> you get what I'm saying. This is an active waiting. This is an active waiting of growing in holiness, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. We have this verse here that tells us clearly Jesus Christ is God. When the Jehovah's Witness comes to your door, this is the verse you go to. And we show them that this clearly says that Jesus Christ is God. We wait for the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior. There's a Greek rule in here that shows that what's before the and and what is after the and are of equal value. Okay, we don't need to talk about that, but some split it up. And the Greek one allows us to do it. Who gave himself to redeem us and to purify us so that we would be zealous for good works. This is salvation, past, present, and future. And this is the way we are to live as we wait. For our blessed hope, the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Verse 15, declare these things, exhort, rebuke with all authority, let no disregard you. So then we get to the, the chapter 3, which now is really conduct, conduct itself wisely towards outsiders. And that's how we need not only good elders, we need good church members, we need good Bible studies, we need all kinds of things. Yes, ma'am. Actually, I have a question about just the word structure. And because when I read this before, I never connected verse 7 as applying to verse 6. I, I, I thought each sentence ended with a period and then, so show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. I kind of thought that was for everybody. So I, I realized, oh, maybe I was wrong. <laughs> well, that is instruction for the young men. And I didn't realize that. I, I thought the charge to young men was to be self-controlled, period. <laughs> well, is, is it possible then? I think in the context it's still talking about young men simply because of the order. Older men, older women, younger women, younger men. And then to the end, slaves. We haven't talked about slaves. But in the end, all of you. Okay? So even if, let, let's say, let's say it's a both hand in the sense that I think we could find these same instructions elsewhere in Paul's writings for all believers. Okay? I guess part of the reason I, I have tried to, because I do teaching in my job mm -hmm. uh, at work, I try to hold on to this verse, that this is how I should, even though I don't work in a Christian role, this is how I need to present myself. Yeah. I mean, I think if we, so the primary initial audience may have been this group of young men, but the application of those truths that we find elsewhere would also apply to us today. And we would find places in Colossians, we'd find places in the Gospel of Matthew, in First, First Corinthians, First and Second Thessalonians, it talks about being a good worker, 
being a, a witness in the workplace that would confirm and at least uh, go along with what we see here, okay? Let me stop there and ask for any questions or comments you may have. This is the, 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 chapter 2 is a masterpiece in theology. <laughs> so there's some things you want to explore a little further. We can. Um, we see What we see is... Paul always in his letters tells us what we need to know, so based on gospel truth, and then what we need to do because the gospel is true. So we see that clearly here. First 10 chapters, he reverses the order here. First 10, cha- first 10 verses, he says, this is what you do because this is what is true. The grace of God has appeared. The grace of God trains. The grace of God empowers. The grace of God causes us to persevere. Okay? Paul always tells us things we need to know and things we need to do, and always in relationship to each other, so that everything is grounded in the gospel. Okay? Yes? Verse 5, would you expound on that a little bit? No. (laughs) (laughs) Because it seems that nowadays it is the exact opposite. Because the Bible teaches for women to submit to their husbands, the word of God is reviled. Yes. And so how does that work out? Could you give your opinion on that? Well, so we have the, the general parameters within the gospel and within the word of God of, of men being the, the priests of their home, being the spiritual leaders of their home. And that as the church is being established and it's being built up, that these young men need to be taught to channel all of their passions and desires towards godly ends so that they are using them in a way that is building up their own families and the church. You have men in verse 2 that are told to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and in steadfastness, that as things go according to God's created norms, this will lead to human flourishing. So in verse 5, as part of going according to God's created norms, that women will find that their flourishing will happen and the church will grow as they learn in partnership with their husbands to submit to their spiritual leadership. Now, what it is not saying is that men will be domineering in their spiritual leadership. Men are addressed clearly elsewhere and say that is not the kind of leader they're supposed to be. They also are to be servants. They are also to be sacrificial. They are also to be gentle. Okay? So verse 5 would have been countercultural in that time period where there was confusion about the roles of men and women. And you had things like transvestitism, and you had male and female prostitution in the temples, and you had this confusion of... Paul is Paul bringing back and saying, when we do it God's way, the family is strengthened, the church is strengthened, even individuals are strengthened. So, yes, it's countercultural to today because we don't like the word submission. But we can't get around it. We are all submitted to something. Wherever we're at in society, whatever our station is, we are all in submission to something. Even if it's our own wicked desires. And we'll find that our own wicked desires are not good masters. So we can't be submitted to those. We have to be submitted to a new master, which is what the gospel brings about, and we're submitted to Christ. And then when we present the beauty of God's plan, we see that marriage, as God designed, it brings protection, it brings provision, it brings flourishing, and it brings the best use of those gifts that God has given to men and women within the family. So we just have to, pres- we have to present it in its gospel-redeeming manner and impact. And then not, not flinch. That would go back to verse 9. Hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught. Well, that trustworthy word as it is taught is, this is how men are to respond, this is how women are to respond. And boy, it works out really well when we all do that. Okay? But the Word of God will be reviled just by teaching it. So are you saying that as we live it out, people see it and see the beauty of it, and then they won't revile it in the end? Okay, I see what you're saying. Um, people will mock the very idea. But, but the Word of God, from whose vantage point, will be reviled? So, 
from God's vantage point, he doesn't want his word to be reviled by us not following the norms. So did he not rebuke the people of Israel over and over again by saying, my name is being blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Okay? That's even quoted in the New Testament. So God doesn't want his name reviled. He wants God's people to do what they're supposed to do in God's ways. Will the word, uh, I'm sorry, the world, the unbelieving world mock God? Yes. They always have. But if they do, let it be because they actually understand the implications. Jesus is the only way. Marriage is uniquely between a man and a woman. Any other sexual expression is always wrong. Uh, children are best raised by a loving father and mother. Uh, you know, let them revile us for the right reasons. Not because we have gone outside of the norm of God. Because it's going to happen. They did it with Jesus himself. But I'm not sure here that that's what that's talking about. I think it's talking about lawless Christians not living according to the norms. Therefore, the church's reputation, the word of God is what's being revived. Any other thoughts on that? That's a good question. Yes, sir. I could have totally misunderstood the question, but for me, when, when I heard it, I thought we were headed more towards the conflict between, well, in the role of women, okay, the role of wives and mothers, are they to be the keepers at home? Simply because Paul doesn't say anything else about it, you know, in their workplace, in their job, in their whatever. And is that going to create the conflict with the world? The world's going to take a look at that and say, oh, well, that's so totally backward. Right. And, but then again, from the Christian perspective, is that part of what makes us a peculiar people? And I think the more that we you know, stray from that, we, we tend to side, we tend to get closer and closer to the, what the world's definition is. Right. And, is that the part where the Lord steps in and says, yeah, you're being blasphemed by those people because you're not doing what you're supposed to do? Okay. Is that more where your question was going? No. No. No, no I think the second half of your answer was more it's for me. If I talk to a non-believer and I say this is what the Word of God says, they would revile the Word of God because of what it's teaching. And here it seemed like the grammar was saying, the opposite. But I think from his point of view, does the revalue come to me as helpful? Yeah. Well, he's exactly right that, that what, what he is saying is, look, this is, this is what motherhood, fatherhood, marriage, the home is going to look like. And um, I, I look at this, you know, because I, I want to be a tool of the Spirit of God, and I see this as a beautiful picture. Okay? Now, let me tell you, how, in our culture, we have to deal with it in one angle. And that is, does that mean then that women can't work outside the home? Does that mean that women can't have a career? And I, and I, say, I don't think that's what he's saying here. But I think what he is saying is that a woman will find her primary purpose, meaning, goal, uh, satisfaction, seeing that she has a godly home. She has godly children. And if she can handle all that, okay. That's the cultural side from the West. When I was in the East, it was very different. They wanted the woman to be under the man's thumb for everything. And so I would start out with a little bit of a, I tell a joke, because I understood what how Jordanians understood how they would think. And I would say, well, I am the president of my house but my wife is the minister of the interior. Okay. And they would laugh, and they would get it. Oh yeah, the woman's, you know, just, just keep her at home, you know. And I'd say, yes, she needs to be about building godly values in her children and loving your husband and everything, but she can also contribute to the betterment of society. Because if we keep women walled up all day in their homes, how are they going to impact society? And so I would push back the other way to women having in Christ, having more of a, a redeeming or influence in the culture beyond just the four walls of her home. So it's a struggle that goes back and forth. What does that look like? But the general principle, I think we would all grasp. Right? Our culture is so sideways that sometimes it's hard for us to even think clearly about the subject to know what are the steps that we take. 
And, um, but the general principles are there. Be a woman. Be a man. Be, be, be confident and proud to be a woman. Be confident and proud to be a man. As God has made you. With the giftings that he's given. And then we can really enjoy what it is to be human. But all of this confusion that is brought in by the world just makes it worse. So in this sense, I mean, I wouldn't go along with a lot of what they do in their philosophy, but when the French say, vive la différence, you know, they enjoy the difference of men and women, I say amen and amen, now it's sanctified by what God has given in His Word. Okay? So that we really have men and women as men and women, and that's part of God's beautiful plan. Okay? I hope I've addressed what, what you're saying. It's... I hope I haven't buried my own, uh, dug my own grave. I don't know. <laughs> is the word gospel kind of the same, used in the same sense that we use it today? Talking bad about someone usually without their knowledge? Where do you see this? The uh, word gossip, where's that? Verse. Where is it? Three? Verse three of? Chapter two. Chapter two. Sentence slanders. I have slanderers or slaves too much wine. Um, slander. I have to look at the actual Greek word that's behind each one. Because when I read slander, I get a little different tint than gossip, although they're ugly cousins, right? Um, because slanderer, actually, one of the root names of the devil, Satan is accuser or slanderer and so I want to look to see if there was a common root there but I would say avoid both right don't be gossips don't be slanders because how do they help anyone else how do they build up your neighbor okay As one of the older women that gets to teach the younger women, I just wanted everybody to know that the jail is open and I get to go back tomorrow. Yay! Oh, good. That is a great answer So he concludes then, what, as we just want to wrap up the book of Titus, conduct yourselves wisely toward all, especially to those who are not believers. And, and then look at some of the commands we see in chapter 3. Now believers are commanded to what? Be submissive to rulers and authorities. To speak evil of no one, chapter verse 2. To avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy. And then there's a, the testimony of all of us that we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That sounds like a 24-hour news cable right there. Okay? But, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. That's the hope for everyone that's in Christ. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Now, chapter 2, verse 11, he said, when the grace of God appeared. And we know that, of course, is Jesus Christ. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Spirit, he caused us to be born again. It was His work. He saved us. Caused to be born again by the Spirit of God. Cleansed us. Poured it out on us through Christ. So that, verse 7, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. All goes back to God. If your testimony ever starts out with, I did, therefore I am saved, your testimony is starting out in the wrong place. It should be, I was, but God. Okay? Because in the testimony and honor all goes back to Him. But when God, this is what we were, but when God appeared in His goodness and kindness, He saved us. Okay? So what are some things that are unique to this book? We have great terminology about the return of Christ. Study it for yourself, Second Titus 2. What he says there about the glorious return or the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior. I'm so glad we have the book of Titus because that's where we have this expression. 
We talk about the blessed hope. We didn't have Titus. We wouldn't have that phrase in our vocabulary. There's statements about the nature of the Cretans. Uh, <laughs> uh, Paul's just saying this is what they say about the Cretans. That they're, they're not good people. But one of the clear statements about the nature of regeneration, we just read that in chapter 3. Regeneration is God's holy work in which God the Holy Spirit imparts new life to those that were spiritually dead. And then we see the picture between Paul and Titus, who was a key disciple. So some key verses then. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So this is Paul's charge to Titus. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. He's already said the elders have to what? Hold firm to, to the trustworthy word is taught. Here he says, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Here's what it will look like as you teach men, women, younger men, younger women, uh, workers. But all of us are to live these self-control, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And then verse 3, chapter 3, verse 8, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. What an interesting statement. The obedient lifestyles of Christians living out their faith, living out the gospel, will lead to the human flourishing. Not only of themselves, but those they minister to as the gospel continues to permeate people's lives and situations. Okay? So I'm glad we have this little book that challenges us, challenges me, and yet it's so full of hope. Because it was the kindness of God, the grace of God, that now can change us to be more and more the people of God in the, in the larger culture in which we live. Any last comments or questions you might have? What's a good way to really, uh, what is a good way to really conquer self-control? So that's a good question. So first of all, we start with some scriptural truth. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. So we start by saying, thank you, God, that one of the ways you work in my life with the Holy Spirit is self-control. So you, you bring him into the equation, this is what he gives. And secondly, you start to look at, because this is true, what are the things that I need to do? And then Paul has all kinds of commandments of, be careful about your tongue, be careful about your eyes, be careful of where you go, study the word, uh, continually act upon what is right, all the while saying, God, give me the strength to make the right decisions, to say no where I need to say no. And as important, to say yes, where are these saints? And it's a relationship with God, the Holy Spirit. So continually invite God in this vibrant relationship that he has with you to be guiding you. Don't turn it into rules. Turn it into a relationship that is empowered by grace that leads to no, no, yes, yes, thank you, Lord. Praise all the way through. And then you'll find yourself then overcoming sinful habits. Along the way, have some good sisters around you that will be able to talk with you and encourage you and pray for you and speak into your life. And all of us then need to be quick to confess our sins because as we do that, things are going to come up. And just quickly confess them. You know, don't, don't get in an argument with the devil. Don't get in an argument with your flesh. God says to sin. I confess the sin, receive the forgiveness that is already there, and say, okay, Lord, keep guiding me. And you'll, you'll find then that you're overcoming some of the things that you struggle with. And be a student of yourself. What gets me in a situation where I struggle with self-control? And then start wisely avoiding those situations or helping yourself to get through those situations. Okay? Very good question. Any last thoughts? Yes. I love the fact that the blessed hope is very Christ-centered. Yes. Because we talk about all these other things, and songs will talk to us about, I don't know, streets of gold, and I'm like, okay, whatever. This reminds us of the one thing that is our blessed hope. And yeah. I like that. 
I mean, at the end of the day, right? We'll be walking on streets of gold, but it'll just be pavement. <laughs> the gold is for us, right? It'll be expensive pavement, but the gold is for us. All right. Let me pray here. Father, we thank you for watching over us and for guiding us in the truth of your word and the beauty of the gospel. Oh, Father, may the gospel become just ever more precious to us as the days go by. Would you help us to share that gospel well with those around us and invite them into 